What is the significance of simple inanimate objects such as the horseshoe? How can they take on an entirely new meaning when inverted or placed upright? Side note, all you Mad Men fans out there, stay tuned for some Easter eggs. How can we achieve a richer, fuller life through documenting and capturing stories, thereby illustrating the quote, people who keep journals have life twice? And what is the story behind my father's list? What can we learn from a copy editor who tackled an ambitious 50-plus item bucket list compiled by her late father, who had been killed by a distracted driver more than a decade prior? Stay tuned as we touch on these and many other topics on this week's episode of Untether Your Life. Welcome to Untether Your Life, a show that empowers you to own your own health and break free of templates for managing physical and mental wellness, and looks at key issues impacting the South Asian diaspora. I am your host, Nikhil Torsikar, and I'm passionate about the power of conversation to catalyze change. I lost my father-in-law earlier this year after a grueling, decades-long struggle with Parkinson's disease and many other illnesses. Although beset by grief, I reflect fondly upon the time we spent together pay close attention to guidance and messages he sends to my wife Shelly and me from beyond, and try to emulate and espouse many of his grand plans and visions in my day-to-day activities. Because of this experience, I was thrilled when my friend and previous guest Kirsten Parsons Hathcock introduced me to this week's guest, my father's list author, Laura Carney. A writer and magazine copy editor based in New York, Laura has been published by the Washington Post, the Associated Press, Good Housekeeping, and many other leading outlets. My Father's List is her first book. My Father's List is the story of how one woman, with the help of family, friends, and even strangers, found the courage to go after her own dreams after realizing those of a beloved yet mysterious man. This is a story about secrets and the freedom we feel when we learn to trust again, in life, in love, and in a father's lessons on how to fully live. And with that, let's get untethered. Laura, I'd love it if you could share any uh, anything beyond what I had referenced there in that bio. Sure. I live in Montclair, New Jersey with my husband and our beloved cat, who Mm. is now 15 years old. And uh, it's really, it's kind of a surreal, amazing experience to be where I am right now with a book out in bookstores. Because, you know, when I first moved to New York from Delaware 20 some years ago, that's what Mm. my husband and I were obsessed with. We just spent all of our time in Barnes and Noble and bookstores. And he actually when I first moved to New York, he was running a literary journal mm. called Monkey Bicycle. So that is sort of my initiation into creative writing, in a sense. And my book is really a blend of my experience as a copy editor in magazines, my experience working for literary journals, and yeah. sort of nurture. Let's just dive in uh, to the book because it's it's such a unique a story. I would love if you could just, at a high level, tell us a little bit more about the book in a nutshell, sort of you know what it's about, sort of how it came about, backstory, et cetera. Uh, floor is yours. Is one of the things that's important to me is that this book is touching people and it's helping them feel maybe inspired in their own lives and motivated and and have maybe a better sense of self-belief no matter what they've been through. And the reason that's so gratifying for me is because I used to be a person in my 20s who felt like I had just been through so much and sort of became very risk averse in some ways because my father died because of a teenager making a phone call at a red light when I was 25. And the year before that, I spent a week in a hospital to get off of about nine different psychopharmaceutical medications, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, et cetera, that I didn't actually need. And this was the culmination of about seven years of therapy that I went through. And 
you know, I do have clinical depression and ADHD, but also probably part of that therapy came about due to my difficulties adjusting sure. to my parents' divorce. They divorced when I was six, but it was for kind of an adult reason, and they chose not to share that with us until I was 18. And I, I was a pretty inquisitive kid. I'm a pretty inquisitive person, and I just started asking lots of questions, basically. So I think uh, in my 20s, a lot of what I was doing was compensating for these things that I thought made me feel different. And I was also becoming a writer, and I think I knew I needed to write about that year of my life when I turned 25 because so many things happened. I mean, even you know, in addition to my father dying the way that he did so suddenly. I had also just moved to New York City. I had also just met the man I would later marry. I made the choice not to leave New York, not to go back to Delaware, which is where I grew up. And I just kept feeling like this is a story. Like my life is suddenly a story. And I knew it had to be a book somehow. I just didn't know how. And I just chose to focus pretty hardcore on my career and on doing what I went to New York to do, which was to get a job in journalism. And I, I spent about the next decade doing that, moving up in the ranks, uh, going from a celebrity tabloid to a national women's magazine. I started out at the Associated Press. And I think I'd been at Good Housekeeping about seven years when I got married. And my husband and I were visiting my brother in his new house. And he said he discovered what appeared to be our father's bucket list which neither of us knew he had. I found out later my mom knew about it because my dad wrote it when I was a baby. But I don't know that anybody knew that my dad kept this thing for his entire life. There are, there are basically like 60 items on it. And it looked as though he had checked off five. And he, I remember he did it in different colored pens. So that's how my brother and I knew like this is a thing he was doing all the time. And I actually only just found out recently that the bucket list was one of his personal items, you know, along with a driver's license and a ring and whatnot that he had oh, on wow. him when okay. he died. So he probably had this in his wallet. I was, which means I was around it twice a week, you know, yeah. for 20 years, 25 years. Well, it's so interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that as I'm becoming more curious and more spiritual and, and, and inquisitive, one of the things that I'm starting to get really interested in is how objects, you know, have energy and how objects have vibrations. And it's so, it kind of gives me the chills as I think about that, because it's like, you know, he had memorialized this at a young age in his life, but then as he lived and grew older, he had it with him at all times. So if you think about all the things that that object sort of witnessed and took in, all the vibrations and the energy. It's its pretty powerful. And now, yeah, go on. Sorry to interrupt there, but yeah, it just uh, kind of struck me. No, I mean, no, I understand. It's warranted. I mean, I only just learned this a month ago. My mom told me <laughs> after my book launch, because at the book launch, we had, it was amazing. I, I somehow managed to get Jim Axelrod, who's a CBS News correspondent, and he interviewed me on CBS Sunday mm -hmm. morning on Father's Day. And when he came to my apartment, we discussed that I was going to launch the book in Montclair, where we both live, and he agreed mm -hmm. to come and, and present it. And that was one of the things he talked about at the book launch was where where did, where was it this whole time? And a lot of people have asked me yeah, that. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was in this little bag that my brother had for 13 years. But prior to that, my dad apparently always had it in his wallet. But 
my mom told me after the event, we were at a restaurant, and that was when she revealed that, that my uncle, my dad's brother, had found wow. it on him. And then, you know, after the funeral, my brother was given the bag, and he put it in a box and opened it again when he mm -hmm. got was about to get married. But I mean, I like to think if I found it at any point in those 10 years, or 13 years, actually, it was, I wouldn't have made the same choice. I wouldn't have mm -hmm. decided to do it. You know, I just, I wouldn't... I actually think I might have come across it when I was 25, like the week my dad died before it was put in a bag and was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. You know, like, really? He thought he was going to talk with the president? Of course, that's the kind of stuff he would say. Like he had these... Often high, visions. Uh, yeah. Almost grandiose. What was your relationship life. with your dad like? I mean, obviously, divorce is always very complex, especially when you go through something like that at such a young age. But uh, it was really close. I think in some ways we were cut from the same cloth, but you know, I think the same could be said for him and my brother in other ways. And you know, he and my brother were both very musical and they're both singers and uh, they both love sports. And you know, I sing myself, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not my passion. They were really passionate mm -hmm. about performing. And th that was great mm -hmm. for me. It was very entertaining. <laughs> and not only that, but they're both really comedic. Sure. They're both great impressionists and they nice. would have like impression offs. So, you know, I was like an audience all the time. And, you know, in a way, maybe that was sort of preparing me to become a writer, right? Becoming a reporter or memoirs because I, I got really good at observing. I always think writers, I, I feel like I read this somewhere. Yeah. Because writers live two lives. One where they're living. You know, it's a funny story. There was, uh, I think it was, gosh, I, I'm so, I wish I had that on the tip of my tongue, but I, I, I'm on Twitter and I tweeted the link. I tweeted that quote out and I quoted the person who said it. Uh, and I can't remember who it was, but I tagged that person. But they were like, you tagged the wrong person. She died in 1936. But I, but that, that quote is so apropos because, yeah, you're right. It's like the act of living through it. You know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember it, but. As you're living it, that's one thing. But as you're documenting it, and the word I used before is memorializing it, it's almost like it takes on a, a whole new life. Yeah. And then the other thing I think I started doing a lot was because, I mean, my dad was insistent. I'm not going to be just a weekend's dad. Not that there's anything right. wrong with weekend's dads, but he said, I'm going to be there every Wednesday and every Sunday. He wanted sure. it to feel very consistent. You know, I think part of how I coped with the fact that he was not there every day now from age six on was I just started mm -hmm. learning how to collect what was happening, how to collect the experiences. Uh, but yeah, I really think that was me learning what was later going to be my profession because I just got my, I learned to refine my memory and and tell things as they actually happened and become, mm -hmm. I was becoming a storyteller, I think. You know, my dad was a great writer. He didn't talk about it ad nauseum. He was pretty humble. I mean, that was one of his standout qualities, which is weird, right? It's weird in a person who is this big energy, you right. know, when they enter larger a room and they're loud and they're funny. I said, also, uh, like larger than life. They, they really, they know how to make an entrance as they say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ironic that I was so loud in saying that I couldn't hear what you were saying. That was, he was, yeah, he was channeling. You were channeling like, dad, maybe that's what it was. Probably. I mean, his sense of humor was for the absurd. And I think that's a writing quality too, isn't it? Like we don't really take life all that seriously writers in some ways because we're always uh, sure. just a tad detached from it. Uh, yeah, it was key to his comedic timing. I think people who are funnier, or I think always thinking of jokes. I know my husband's that way. Like mm -hmm. he'll find mm -hmm. the right moment and then say it. And my dad was also very sensitive, like like a man of his time. I think he wasn't always expressing it, but I, I do. I mean, my brother's this way too, just really sensitive, introspective men, not shut off to their emotions at all, which it's always been sort of a shock to me 
to learn that yeah. most men are not like that because it's definitely yeah. not yeah, what I grew sure. up with. I do want to understand a little bit more because as you and I talked about, uh, I went through a similar journey recently, not similar in the sense of loss. Uh, my father-in-law, who I was very close to, uh, he passed away in January. And one of the things that we've noticed is that even though his body has passed on, his, his spirit lives on. And what we've just found is that, yeah, there is this sort of like invisible hand that's pushing us along in our journeys, you know, whether it's career, whether it's location, whether it's, you know, where we want the ball to go, so to speak. I feel like he's sort of behind shepherding us along. In fact, my wife is is writing a book about it uh, as we speak. I want to hear more about what that looks like for you in terms of after your father passed, what the relationship and this, you know, to some people, this might sound like very woo-woo, like out there, like, well, what do you mean? He's he's not here. But you get it, obviously, because you've been living it. But what is your relationship like with your dad these days? I think when he died, I still had some unresolved conversations I wanted to have with him. And maybe not even consciously, just things. I think that happens in a relationship. Sometimes things go unsaid, especially if it's a parent, you know, and, and you start sort of identifying with, I had some disappointments with him in life and I started internalizing them like, oh, it's because of me or I'm not worth this, that or the other. One of the things I wrote about in the book was that he didn't fund my college education, for example. And I was a little bit focused on the real world, which, or at least what I considered to be the real world, which was we all have human bodies and those human bodies die. And when the human body dies, that person is no longer there. That's just looking through my physical eyes, you know, but it's not looking at it through my mm -hmm. spiritual eyes, for lack of a better metaphor. So, you know, our energy that we carry inside of us, we're just vessels for it. But really, it's impossible mm -hmm. for energy to die. It has to go somewhere. So my dad hadn't actually gone anywhere. And I know that now. But at the time, I didn't believe it. And I think that's the key word is your belief. Like, what do you believe is happening? Because really, and not just with spiritual things, not just with the afterlife, I think in general, what you believe about yourself and your life is going to really color your experience of it and what you do and what you think you can do and what you're going to do next. You know, because what you believe you can make, you can bring Man to fruition, you can put that belief yeah. into knowing. So, yeah, but I don't think it's a thing like... You know, that's a real that's a real keyword for millennials right now, I think, is manifestation sure. and yeah. the whole new age movement. And I don't I don't think it's a thing where it's like, oh, I can just wish something into being. You know, it's more I can want something, but it's like, what am I gonna do to make it happen? You know, I'm not just sitting here waiting mm -hmm. for it to come to me. It's more I'm gonna if you pray for something that's so different than just wanting it or wishing for it, because mm -hmm. now you're co-creating. You're asking for help. And I don't think it truly matters how religious you are. I don't think it matters if it's a Christian God or a Jewish God or Buddhism or the universe, whatever you think you're praying to. I, at least I have found in my own experience that's very powerful. And I might have had a nudge towards that practice. Maybe I prayed before my dad died, but it wasn't as much of a part of my daily life as it is now. And I think I might have had a nudge towards that because mm -hmm. of doing his list, because I now felt like, well, I don't know if he's here still, but it kind of could be helpful yeah. if he were. <laughs> I was down asking him questions and waiting for a response and seeing what would come into my mind. And it opened up these new channels for me of understanding that really, if your loved one has passed on, they're always trying to mm -hmm. communicate with you. They get really happy when you hear them and you respond. And there's a there's like a co-collaboration that's going on in your life. And it's with God too. It's with, you know, whatever you believe in. 
I feel now like I, I basically have transformed from this person who thought my dad was gone, thought I was alone in the world. And that was really depressing for me because it was almost mirroring when he moved out when I was six. So I was, it was now triggering trauma, that yeah. previous grief. Yeah. And I had also just been through this whole thing with the hospital and, and depression and the diagnosis. It was like it was too sure. much at once for me. So instead of embracing what I'm doing now, which is believing and connecting and embodying ideas and embodying uh, the concept of giving to other people, which is what I like to do now, instead of doing that, I really shut down. I built almost like a coat mm -hmm. of armor around me. So even if my dad were trying to get through then, and in the beginning, it was just, you know, it was the number 88 yeah, I would see day, a lot because yeah. that was the mm -hmm. day he died. Yeah, there was songs that he would sing that would come on at an opportune time. It was happening very gradually over that 13-year period. And I think the reason for that was, A, I didn't believe in it. And B, it took that long for me to start to let the trauma and the grief dissipate a little bit and, and start to become happier in my life and permit myself to be happy, permit myself to do things that were very life-affirming which I was a young woman, you know, it's natural that I would be doing that, but I was resisting it a lot because mm. I had this survivor guilt, you know, this terrible thing had happened to someone I loved and, you know, that changed how I looked at the world. I actually think part of why I had to find the list when I did and commit to doing it was because I had just gotten married. I mean, I married the man my dad met yeah. five days ago. And one ago. of the items was that he and wanted to took walk yeah, sing at the wedding, wedding, right? Yeah. So it, it's almost like the, there are no coincidences, as they say, right? So it's, I guess that's, there is some solace, I'm sure, that there was some connection there between your father and, and the man you would have actually married, even though. And I think it was, it was triggering some of those old resentments, too, actually, when we were planning our wedding. Because, you know, we both work in publishing. We weren't going to have an extravagant wedding. I was 38 years old. I was feeling insecure about that. I think that being 38 and getting married after every other person I knew was triggering the whole I'm six and my mm. dad just moved out feeling of being different. And, and oh, I'm I have depression. I'm in a hospital feeling, you know, like the whole like stigma yeah. of I'm an outsider. That was happening. So it ended up being a beautiful wedding. And it was sort of like it was sort of like I just kept having this feeling of this is supposed to be enjoyable this is supposed to be a wonderful moment in my life. Mm -hmm. And yet my dad's not here. And and it was really, it was really emotional for me. A guy was crying as I was walking down the aisle. And partly because I was so happy sure. that I was marrying my husband. Did you feel his presence? Uh, did you feel his dad? presence at the wedding? Or or did you feel more of a void? Or what was that like kind of, you know, going through such a pivotal moment in your life, you know, without such a important presence there? I think I probably did. I think it was starting to, to, like I said, it amplified six months later when we found the list, but I think it was probably starting to warm up so that I was starting to. I mostly, though, was sad, like he's not here, he's not here, he's not here. And that's what I mm -hmm. mean when I talk about belief, because that's what I believed. I still believe that whole thing. If, if you have a body and you're dead, you're not there and felt mm -hmm. quite bad for myself. Sure. So that's where the crying was coming from. But, you know, later when I looked at the pictures from the wedding, I couldn't help but notice in the family portrait on the stairs of the inn where we stayed in New Mexico, there was an empty spot mm. right next to my brother, which is where my dad would have stood at the reception in the restaurant. And it was this beautiful Santa Fe, you know, patio restaurant. And there was an empty chair. When my husband announced the proposal to my mom, we went out to lunch and 
there was an empty chair at that. And that was when she's like, oh, there's your dad. So these things kept happening. We had a bottle of wine at the wedding and we brought that because my dad had bought it in the 70s. He was a liquor distributor. He had many, many different jobs, Mm -hmm. but usually a salesman. And he wrote on the wine, the best wine America has made. And then he wrote to open on Lara's wedding day. So it was sort of like we had this. So even though maybe he wasn't there, we at least could fulfill that intention for him. And it was it was amazing. He was right. Yeah, it really what blend was, what blend was it? It really just, was the I'm best one in America had ever made. Oh, it was from the Robert Mondavi Vineyards like from 1974. It was a Cabernet. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how much you know about Cabernet is my favorite. But, I, um, I don't know. In that time. I, I'm not a wine connoisseur by any means, but yeah, I love Cabernets, but. So I, I had to study the history of American, I had to study about wine. <laughs> I learned about American wine for the book. Um, I study about wine every night, a couple yeah, bottles. What an arduous <laughs> thing. <to study. laughs> so what my dad wrote on the bottle was true. That was the vintage that was absolutely hmm. the best America had ever made. And like globally, the best globally. He could have written that as well. Um, so yeah, it was, I think having that happen at the wedding, I, I describe it as like a, and it's a wonderful life moment where Jimmy Stewart is standing there and everyone shows up on you know New Year's mm-hmm. Day and they have mm-hmm. money for him so his business can survive. That's what it felt like. We're all standing there with these glasses and I had 30 wedding guests and they're all like, I want mm-hmm. some, I want to try the wine. And leading up to that moment, I actually was dreading it because I thought, well, God, it's been 40 years yeah, almost. Skunked. This wine is going <laughs> to yeah, right. make us all sick. <laughs> <laughs> And it's so like indicative of my relationship with my dad because he was always ahead of his time. He always had incredible ideas, but because he had so many ideas and was so creative and seemed so unfocused, I was always more inclined to not believe and to not trust it. It almost always turned out to be right. We just weren't ready yet. If that does that make sense? Well, and I want to touch on. I want to expand a little bit on something you touched on, which is like symbols and symbology, because. You talk about this bottle of wine and how what it symbolized and your father's spirit and everything's like that. One of the things that emerges when I've seen some of the photos, there is a photo of, we've got the sheets and then there's a horseshoe. And obviously when people think of horseshoe, I think it's, is it luck that typically people hear about? In the book, you talk about the significance of the horseshoe. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, what that means and sort of how it ties into the journey? Yeah. I'm so happy you asked me about that, Nikhil. <laughs> yeah. That's what I always want to talk about. Okay. I feel like no one ever asked me about it. No, it's it's because it's the main symbol of the book. It's the main, I mean, I even considered at one mm-hmm. point putting a horseshoe mm-hmm. on the cover of the book. I have a horseshoe. I have two horseshoe necklaces. I have a couple horseshoe bracelets. So I started wearing a horseshoe in some matter necklace or bracelet when I started doing the list. I had learned about it mm-hmm. as a TV recapper. So for many years, I think part of why I became blocked as a writer, even though I was getting these jobs at magazines as a copy editor, part of why I became blocked was because mm-hmm. I needed to tell this story. I needed to write this book, but it was so big. I didn't know how to wrap my head around it. And also I was afraid of the feelings that would emerge in me. I think I just wasn't ready. So I just started um, recapping TV and I learned how to do that. And it was awesome. And I think now I, what I was doing was actually like refining my research skills, which is something I would also need to tackle this 54 item list that a man wrote in 1978 because I needed to learn how to study them in depth enough to write about them. So I learned when I was recapping the show Mad Men that Matthew Weiner, the showrunner, wanted Hmm. to call it the horseshoe. 
okay. at one point. Because, and if you look back at that show, you'll notice there are many episodes where horseshoes are sprinkled in, in the back, you know, Easter eggs okay. like they do. But, you know, recappers, that's what we do, right? Like we look for the Easter eggs and then we explain them to the viewers. So one of the things one of the episodes talks about is, I believe it's the person who played uh, Dick Whitman's stepmother. She says, life is like a horseshoe. It's uh, open on both ends and it's hard all the way through. That actually, I learned that. And then I started learning about how people also sort of describe middle age as a horseshoe shape, like like you're at the beginning of your life. And then when you get to the top, that's the middle. And then you're at the end. So middle age is supposed to be sort of the peak of your life in a way. And then you kind of your facilities start to decrease. Yeah, decline. Exactly. And really, that was that flashback he had of his stepmother saying that I think Matthew Weiner was also making that sort of a reference to the fact that the whole Mm -hmm. show is a midlife crisis. I mean, that's what Don Draper is going through. And then I got really curious about, well, why, why is he showing horseshoes all the time? Like, like it has to be more than just that. So I learned that the horseshoe is a symbol for luck, but it's in two different positions. So basically, in the West, You know, whether you're in America or you're in Ireland or the UK, um, Western Europe, maybe you're going to find a U-shape. People hang it above their doors. The the concept for that is they don't want their Mm -hmm. luck to spill out. Like they're holding on to it. It's it's almost like a very conservative way of hanging a horseshoe. But then I discovered that people hang it in the arch shape too, which, you know, if you're a a cowboy in the old West, that's Mm. anathema. Like you would not let, that's the bad way. However, in the East, particularly the Spanish Moors did this, um, and I guess, you know, maybe a more Muslim way too, they would hang an art shape that was like a crescent moon or a horseshoe on the front of the bridles of their horses. And it was a protective symbol. And what it meant was luck rains down upon you. So that's a very yeah. different thing, right? Because if you're doing it like this, that's the American way. That's I'm a self-made man. I control how lucky I am. I control whether it spills out. I control what I have. I hold on to what I have. I'm competing with everyone else mm-hmm. in some way, right? Because if, if you're holding on to what you have, what interaction is that with other people? And I think that it is sort of capitalism. That is sort of how we are today. This shape is so opposite of that. I mean, of course, if you like this, yeah. you're not going to like this because <laughs> you don't want this stuff to go right. away and to fall out. But when I learned about that, I thought, oh, that's faith. You know, that's a person who lives their life guided by faith you know, you would put that on the front of your horse because you want to be protected. You want to be protected mm-hmm. as you go on journeys, as you are mobile. This isn't a very mobile position, but this is. Um, so I, as I was doing the list, I began to embrace the art shape, which, you know, looks a little like a rainbow. That's a pretty hopeful symbol. It mm-hmm. also looks like a door. It also looks like, and, you know, at one point in the journey, I ended up in St. Louis and I was having a catch with a man under the St. Mm-hmm. Louis arch which right. is the gateway to the West. And my dad loved Lewis and Clark. He loved the idea of going on adventures. And, you know, as I began to embrace the arch shape as almost like a mantra for me and how I lived my life, I started understanding better what that actually means. And what it meant for me was instead of being this person who's so burdened by these ideas that I'm not measuring up to other people and I don't have what I'm supposed to have at this stage in my life, I could instead say, no, let it go. Like, let it all go. Don't hang on to anything anymore and just follow where you're being guided and choose to believe that Mm -hmm. you're going to be helped. Because what I found is in that way, the energy Mm -hmm. was flowing through me and then out of me to others. And that is a way easier way to live than sitting still and like, what can I get? Absolutely. That that brings me to, I had a, 
I jotted down, like I said, there were a lot of great uh, quotes. There, there was one line that I really loved, which is you talk about, uh, I'd let the water pass over me like Lois Lane. There was one at section, which is very, was beautiful. And that brings me to my question about the power of surrender, because I think as Americans in this, as you mentioned, the capitalist society, we're just so, we're almost like driven by a motor where it's just, we are seeking that next shiny object, right? We're just seeking that next promotion. We want that nice new fancy car addition to our house, whatever it is. And we just lose that connection with our inner being. And we just, sometimes things are best, the best outcomes come when we just sort of not become completely passive and not like a sitting duck, but we embrace the power of surrender. And so I want to learn more about how surrender figured into your journey, Laura. God, these are such great questions. <laughs> I put my answers yeah. to live up to your questions. You know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with striving. I'm, I'm absolutely still striving, but I'm trying right. to thrive as I do it. Whereas before, I definitely was not thriving while I did it. Because, I mean, you have to ask yourself, what are the reasons that you're mm -hmm. striving for something? And my reasons were, I'm not good. It was like filling a void almost because, and like, you what, know, would you say was related to the, that, the yeah. your parents' divorce, dating back to that? Um, it was related mm -hmm. to what I believed about it. It was related to what I internalized as a child. And, and like, don't get me wrong, they did a fantastic yeah. job with that. I can't even imagine as an adult. You know, I don't talk about this a lot, but basically my dad had a second life. He, has, he had a secret he was hiding, which was that he okay. was a cross-dresser. And my mother discovered it. And, and it was a very traumatic thing for both of them because I can't even imagine what that would be like for me if it were my husband. I found out he had this secret yeah. that he had never told me about. These days, I think, you know, people yeah. are accepting different lifestyles, different choices a little bit more. But yeah, I'm sure back then it was probably pretty uh, jarring for your mom. Well, and I don't lead with that information ever because it's personal. It's their story more than it is mine, but it's also my story because I was their child. And also the other reason I don't is because it was part of who my dad was, but it wasn't the part I knew because he hid it. And also it wasn't the biggest part of who he was. So, you know, I think now we're in a stage weirdly where a lot of conservative politically people just keep focusing on, on yeah. that, on people's gender identities. It's so bizarre as though they're an object or something, you know, as though they're not a full person with who does multiple things in their lives and identifies right. in multiple ways. So, you know, I, I felt it was important to talk about that in the book because it was a real thing. And I don't think it actually matters what the secret was. Um, what, a, what impacted mm. me, it was the secret. And the fact that they felt like it was something they could not tell me until I was old enough. And I can't even imagine what both of them went through because of that happening. Um, I think my father, my father was pretty good at just keeping things from us anyway that he thought might mm -hmm. not be appropriate, um, except for <laughs> his dirty jokes. They were horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and scary movies he let us watch, actually, to come to think of it. Yeah, I think it probably was confusing for him. He was a straight man and he had the inclination to sometimes wear women's clothing mm -hmm. and he also performed that way. He was uh, he worked uh, sometimes in drag clubs as a singer and comedian. So I would love to know more about that side of his life, but it's kind of kept hidden from me. Yeah, Sorry. it's this fascinating uh, theme that we kind of got into. But uh, what I had originally asked was just about embracing the power of surrender. Because it's interesting, there's a bucket list. So as you mentioned, your copy editing background where it's very deadline-oriented, task-oriented, but there are things in there which is really about embracing the world and the nature. Oh, I mean, yeah, obviously, yes. skydiving, surfing the Pacific Ocean. Uh, tell me more about how 
the role of surrender played into into your journey, Laura? And I was saying, you know, I'm still someone who strives for things, but I, I'm not like the striving isn't destroying me anymore. And and I, I brought up the thing about my parents' divorce because even though I don't think there was anything remotely wrong with anything that my dad did, and I understand why he chose to hide it, I understand why he chose to keep it from my mom. Uh, it was illegal when they met. I think they did what they had to do, both of them. Regardless of that, I still internalized when I learned about it at age 18, I internalized that, oh, there's something else that's wrong with us. And I let it become something that stigmatized me. And that was part of my overachieving. I did the same thing when I was six years old and was testing into like seventh grade reading. And, you know, I, I really began to identify with, mm. I need to look like I'm perfect. I need to look like I'm Okay. Um, now with, with doing the list, you know, it was so these tasks I was doing, swimming across a river, running 10 miles straight, skydiving at least once, which I always think that's funny. He said at least once <laughs> riding a horse fast, uh, talking with a president, they're just for fun. You know, they're just, these are great life experiences that my dad wanted to have mm -hmm. at the age of 29. The fact that he wrote it right after he had a baby and he was now in a stage of his life where I imagine people were telling him he was supposed to settle down. And instead, he's he's feeling this real zest for, yeah. for being a human. <laughs> like, these are the amazing things I want to do. I think that was another part of the reason I needed to fight it exactly when I did, because I found it six months after I got married, you know, and, and now I'm in my new family mm -hmm. that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And how am I going to steer that ship? My dad used to always joke that he was the captain mm -hmm. and my mom was the first mate. <laughs> You know, so it's like yeah. as sexist as that sounds, I was going to have a partnership with my husband. And how was I going to steer that? And I was feeling a lot of pressure from the other people I saw and the decisions they were making. And this whole when you're 38 years old and you're female, it's like, well, you better hurry up and have kids. You're, you don't have some you don't have much time in it. You know, you better save for a house. And I felt, again, that familiar feeling of there must be something wrong with me. Because what all my husband and I wanted to do when we were on our honeymoon out west was get a, an RV, tour the country, write about and take yeah. pictures of what we well, were doing. Because that's who we are. Yeah. We're just very I mean, That whole rule, unspoken rule about, you know, getting married in your 20s or whatever it is, it's our podcast talks a lot about the concept of templates, right? Where it's just like, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what everyone else is doing. And when you fall out of line, there is that anxiety. And, and like you said, you tend to beat yourself up and wonder, you know, what is... Uh, what is wrong with me? And I think that it's great that you found purpose in in this book, in the bucket list, and and really just sort of forged your own path. And as we say, just ripped up that template because who's there's millions of people out there. I mean, divorce rates in this country are so high, right? Does that mean that because you got married, at, you know, when you were 28, does that mean like you somehow are doing the right thing? No, it's it's all BS. So well, and I keep talking about belief, right? Like how you can't really. You can't do anything truly authentic and, and actually succeed until you know what you believe and, and actually follow that as opposed to what's at, what's currently right. existing right in front of you. I mean, that has guided me through the past six years and amazing things are happening now. And that's it's because I started doing that. But I think belief is the second step mm -hmm. now that we're talking about this. I think the first step is surrender. I think the first step is, okay, I'm not all these things I think I'm supposed to be. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like my mom is super creative. She's really creative too. Um, it mm -hmm. runs on both sides of my family. But that adventurous free spirit who didn't care what anyone thought of him was my dad. And that's in me too. And and I, I was fighting yeah. her 
<laughs> you know, I was like, this is not how I'm supposed to be. And no one was showing me yeah. how to be. Do you feel more sort of creative, more fancy free, so to speak, as you went through this journey of taking off items on the bucket list? Like, because you talk about early on, you were very overachieving and, and very trying to fill a void of what, as you said, what the divorce meant to you. Do you feel that you were able to rid yourself of those shackles as you were getting through this list and sort of like getting more in the spirit of your father or, or how did that play out? I mean, the, the best thing I can compare it to is when you're training to do a sport. I was, I became a marathon runner before, like just mm. before we found the list. I don't think that was a coincidence at all. Um, I was training my muscles and my, my mental muscles before finding it. You know, if you decide to take up running, I think probably, especially at middle age, like, yeah. like I, well, I was doing it at 35, just before middle age, uh, you're, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to stick sure. to your schedule, probably. All these perfectionist tendencies I had were not going to go well with running and with learning how to do it. And and that was, I think, something that was making me, it was doing a lot of things to me. But the main things it was doing was it was showing me what I was naturally good at, showing me what I needed work on, showing me I could actually do something if I set out to do it. I, that was the thing I really struggled with. I always kept feeling like things were left unfinished all the time. I had great intentions, but I wasn't great at finishing. Something that was said about my mm. father his whole life. To have something where all I have to do is go run three miles today, and I did it, and I had this great feeling of accomplishment, that was new. And then I think probably the most important thing was mm. I learned how to right. have grace with myself. And doing the list items was that. It was each one led to the next and if I did this, now I can do this. And now I can do this. And they were all building. And I couldn't jump ahead. <laughs> you know, I couldn't right. go to Vienna in year one by myself for two weeks. It just wasn't going to happen. I was almost like evolving spiritually and, and in my sense of confidence and in my sense of self. So I would say as far as becoming more creative, if anything, in, in some ways, I, I sometimes feel a little bit more burdened just because not I don't make everything about me anymore. When you're insecure the way I used to be and self-conscious, you tend to mm. limit your view of the world. And when you let go of that stuff, I think you take more in sure. and take on more to help people. So certainly not fancy free, but more filled with grace, filled with more patience, more dedication to something mm. that's bigger than me. I always make the choice now to follow what I'm compassionate about and to follow what my heart is telling me to do and to listen to my inner voice. Yeah, inner like voice maybe intuition, that you're following that a little bit more, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the book. A big theme in the book is as I'm learning to hear my father's spirit giving me advice, something I didn't do as a teenager, mm -hmm. as I'm starting to do that with his spirit, which, you know, his spirit doesn't have any hangups that he had in life. So he's free to help me. As That's another thing that happens when people die. They only want love for us. They only want happiness for us. They'll do whatever they can to make it happen. So that's probably why you're experiencing that um, with your father-in-law. But, uh, you know, I'm hearing him. And because I opened the floodgates for that, I'm now able to write because that's the same part of the, the brain as your subconscious. I have a channel to that now. And also, I'm finally hearing me. There's two parts of us. There's who we are, who we think we are, and then there's yep. our higher self. And the higher self had been waiting for a really long time for me to actually listen to her. And I do. I mean, I had to do it to do the list. I had to do it to write the book. I do still sometimes have moments, especially with this whole book tour and the promotion and people reading my words, sometimes things that were family secrets and things I just didn't talk about for a long time. I have some anxiety ridden moments. And 
what's really been helping me is I just have learned now to listen to who I really am on the inside. And t- she tells me, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's okay. Yeah. Like, you're going to be yeah. fine. Just hang well, on. You, you talk a little bit about anxiety. We talk about mental health. And as you know, mental health is the key focus of this thing. We talk about a lot of topics, but I would say through the lens of mental health and other cultural issues. But in the book, you talk about your journey with mental health. And we've talked about so many different topics, but I would be remiss if we didn't at least cover this a little bit. So I would like to hear in broad strokes, maybe your journey with mental health, like in terms of getting the right diagnosis, because as we've talked about, my journey with mental health was I didn't get my diagnosis of bipolar disorder until my until I was 40. In a sense, it was challenging because it's like there's probably a lot of things that we could have addressed had we sort of, you know, nipped it in the bud, so to speak, versus letting it spiral out of control. But in another sense, it's a sort of like a gift because now I have a roadmap and I know what to look out for and I have a good support system. But I find I find your journey with mental health, I anyone who has gone through it where it's something that is addressed early on in life, it can be a mixed blessing because there's so much with mental health at the at that young age, there's so much change, there's so much turmoil inherent uh, to that age group that sometimes, you know, trying to throw pills at it, throw different therapists. So I'd love to hear more, uh, Laura, if you could talk about your journey with mental health, both as a child, as a teenager, but also just sort of how you've managed to maintain, you know, stability. That's a great question. Again, (laughs) uh, yeah, I think um, I developed some bad habits at an early age. School Mm -hmm. was not hard for me when I was little. I was testing in the gifted program. I really leaned into that, that like academic kind of identity. And by the time I entered middle school, I had a bit of a shakeup to the way I was living because, you know, when kids enter middle school in the United States, I I imagine this is the case across the board. They suddenly have Mm. a day with seven subjects instead of maybe three, you know, or, or maybe we go to gym today or we go to art today or the library. And now every single day is it was rotating these seven subjects. And I really struggled to get used to that. And now I understand that that's because I have inattentive type ADHD. And the way mine works is I could be sitting here talking to you for five hours probably <laughs> and, and yeah. not really get very tired because I like to hone in on something. You can't do that with a seven right. seven <laughs> class day. Shift, <laughs> you know, you exactly. have to be able to shift. We're not right. in math now. We're in English. Time, to, you know, the bell's ringing. It just was like alarm after alarm after alarm all day long. It doesn't work very well for someone who has that mm. type of attention deficit. However, writing a three hundred page book over mm. six years. Mm. <laughs> perfect. (laughs) You know, that's just how I'm designed to work. Training for a marathon, perfect. You know, so I didn't understand that then. I didn't understand maybe there's good reasons that I'm like this. Instead, I just started thinking, oh my God, I can't keep up. The way I coped with it was if something was due when I hadn't been able to juggle and balance everything and get it all done, um, I would stay home for school. And then by the time I was in high school, and also I was I was late like all the time, but that's just like mm-hmm. a difficulty waking up, which, which also tends to sure. go hand in hand with depression. You know, you wake up and you feel horrible. <laughs> if you mm-hmm. have depression, that's what's happening to you. And as, if you're 14, 15, you don't know this is a chemical imbalance right. that I'm experiencing. It's just yeah, what's exactly. wrong with me, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I still go through that. I have to take my medicine when I first wake up. Um, it's a thing I think people probably forget that I'm going through. For me, it's just an, a regular experience. It's just that's how I'm wired. So 
I just started being late all the time. And yet I'm still in all of these honors and AP classes. I'm still getting really good grades. I'm still applying to the best colleges. You know, it was like, in some ways I was living a double life, right? Because I was really struggling with balance and just on this hamster wheel to like keep up appearances basically. And that was when I was diagnosed when I was 16. Cause what would happen is it would sometimes just all fall apart. You know, usually if I had a major rejection, like a boyfriend dumped me or, you know, something like that, because it would just be like, this hamster wheel I'm on, I I just do not have the energy to keep going because this horrible, horrible thing has now happened that I can never come back from. And I really think it it wasn't even so so much like the disappointment that this person is rejecting me, but rather what will everybody else think when they find out that I was rejected? It was because so much of my life was that now that I'm talking about, I really do wonder how much I was absorbing from how my dad lived. Isn't that interesting, right? Because he didn't tell me he was hiding a secret life. And yet, Mm-hmm. I'm becoming him in my own way. So really, like I just kept seeing therapists. We kept uh, trying new medications and and I kept missing school and I kept coming in late and, and just not talking about it. And I got really good at this like disappearing act in a way. So, you know, this continued through college, um, the same cycles, and that, except now my parents would make my mom and my stepdad would make me come back home if I was getting C's and D's because I couldn't keep up with everything. But along the way, though, I was developing passions. I was finding out that I was a visual artist. I was finding out that I was a writer. Anytime I was in those environments, I did really well. As an English major, I was getting straight A's. So it's like, I guess my inclinations and my aptitudes were finding me, despite Mm. that I would Mm self-destruct, you know, once every year. So yeah, it was like, you know, people didn't know. I didn't talk about it. People in my, I mean, I have people now who've read the book coming to me saying, oh my God, I had no idea because that's how good I was at suffering in silence in a way. Sometimes when I talk about like therapy, sometimes it's almost like diagnosis bingo (laughs) because it's literally like going from, oh, you're, you're having these symptoms today. It's, it's ADHD or, or this day it's, uh, you know, depression or whatever it is. What was your experience with that? I think that my hypervigilance and my difficulty shifting my attention I think it looks mm-hmm. like hypomania. It looks like a person who, you know, has something chemically that's making them really jazzed and 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 doing things that are out of character for them. I wasn't doing that though. I wasn't, you know, the typical symptoms of that like like right. spending a lot of money and, yeah. and just completely unaware of. Yeah, I was never th- I mean, no, I wasn't th- <laughs> it wasn't that. I was just really excited about right. working for the school newspaper. I had finally found something I loved. I didn't understand mm-hmm. balance with time. That was always the thing. Time balance and attention balance was really hard for me. You know, I finally did see a doctor and he's like, "Okay, well, I think you have this new diagnosis called bipolar 2." And he put me on a bunch of medications and everybody sort of felt like this is the answer. Like we there here's a diagnosis we never heard before. And maybe this explains why even though she goes into these depressive episodes, sometimes she bounces back. Right, and she's in a right. good mood again. Like, and even though there were so many obstacles along the way, like I really didn't need to be put on wow. thirteen drugs <laughs> in one year and feel sure. even more stigmatized. And uh, certainly, being in the hospital made me feel that way. It was very confusing to everyone. Though I was there, I was there because right. I couldn't get off the drugs myself. It was too hard. But again, I think that was another one of those experiences where. You know, quite honestly, I think what happened to me when I was in the hospital was I I was going through my familiar mental routine of how am I going to hide this? Like, how am I going to reinvent myself after this? And something in me, I think, broke. I think my higher Mm. self was like, no more. You can't hide this. (laughs) 
you know, because I think I knew even though I could hide it from anyone I, I met in my life, my partner would have to know that I experienced this trauma. And like for the whole year after that, I kept dating guys and then telling them about it. And then that would sure. be the end of the, the relationship because now I'm a crazy right. person, supposedly. And then when I met the man who would be my husband, I waited about a month and then I told him about what had just happened to me. And he said, I think you're an amazing woman. And it was like he respected me and he believed me that I was a sane person and I had just been through a very trying experience. And, you know, from that point forward, I really only ever took one medication. There was some changes here and there. Uh, the one I stayed on after the hospital was an MAOI, which, as I wrote in the book, was something that really was just a last resort mm -hmm. di like prescription because I think they thought I had it called treatment resistant depression because even though I was taking medications, I was still repeating the same behavior. Now I think, yeah. well, I was also drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also yeah. wasn't exercising. So I wasn't doing a whole lot that was, as you talk about, proactive and, and getting in touch with myself spiritually at all. So that's why they put me on that. And it was a thing that was very hard to get off of. Eventually I did. And then I switched to Effexor briefly. And then finally I went back on Wellbutrin, which was one of my favorites because it's great for ADD. Um, and, and my depression, as I said, it's very connected to my ADD. If I feel rejected for some mistake I've made, like rejection dysphoria, that's when I sure, tend sure. to curl in. So what about techniques beyond medication? Because I always say that medication and therapy are good, but they're table stakes, right? Those are the base bare minimum for your journey to mental wellness. What are some of the other techniques that have worked for you, Laura, in terms of managing your, your mental health? I think, uh, you know, I know it keeps coming back to this, but I do mm -hmm. think belief is a big part of it. Um, my self-belief, my sense of self is so different now. And, and a lot of that is because here, you know, I have this book that exists now in the world. I have this, my father's list of dreams that I finished. I'm no longer carrying any stigma about him. I celebrate him and I, uh, strangers are celebrating sure. him. And that's amazing for who he was. Because even though he was imperfect as a human being, he still wasn't this incredible father. You know, and I focus on that. I focus on how lucky am I that I had this incredible father. And I've learned to use that in how I see myself, which is look at all I can do. Look at what I did. And and I do still have my moments where I get hung up on something. And, and it's like, I'll say something to my husband like, yeah, but is is this thing yeah. really successful? Is it? Yeah. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, can you not see? And it's because that girl was like a little bit there, to some degree. Syndrome. She's it's not imposter syndrome. I know it's real. I know what I did is real. I know who I am is real. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm receiving anything I don't deserve. I think it's just more that coping technique I developed as a little girl, which was if I just focus on trying to achieve more and more and more and more, I'm going to get to a place finally where I feel good about myself as mm -hmm. though it's some destination. So really, it's just success for the sake of success's sake. It's not even about the actual thing. So that has been a habit I've had to really let go of. The best prescription, if I were a doctor, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I'm clearly not, but the best prescription I would give for people who go through that is go out and do some really risky things and fail. I mean, but something you care about, like train for a 5K. Go, I don't know, take like... Uh, yeah. tightrope walk. Get out of your comfort zone. Whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever it might be. Get out of your comfort zone and do something that's just fun because it gets you out of your focus on you. It's going to shake yeah. up your sense of reality a little bit. And that's what my dad's list was. I was doing this stuff just for fun, just for him. Because I believed I was doing it to honor him and celebrate someone I love, it was like, okay, 
if I screwed up or things didn't right. go as I wanted them to, because I was on this journey, right. I was there for it. You know, like, like if you go on a camping trip, right. not everything's going to go right. It's just how it is. But that's the fun part. It's like, so basically, that's what I started learning how to do when things are not perfect and they seem to be going wrong. Stop self-blaming. Say, oh, what's this teaching me? This is here for a reason. And and also, I stopped putting the onus on me, you know, so I get it. I do have depression, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that makes me more sensitive. Maybe that makes me better able to connect with people. Maybe that makes me more aware of myself in some ways. So I, I'm learning to take the things that I used to think of as debilitating or bad and use them as positive traits and just live my life with faith as opposed to- Yeah, absolutely. And that ties back into the notion of surrender, just sort of letting things play out rather than trying to control every the minutiae of everyday life. Because at the end of the day, as you know, you found that we found out we really don't have as much control as we'd like. Also, I mean, one of the things my dad used to love to say all the time is that mm. life is lived in little moments. So that's been a big eye opener for me too, is I've learned to like finally really listen to these little things he said, like maybe he was wise about something. So I've become intentional in that I have my own bucket list now. I believe really strongly in doing that because if you don't write down where you want to go, how are you going to get there? You know, don't just like wait for the world to tell you, like, you know what you want to do, like own it, you know? So I do that. But like I said, the ride to get there is going to be different than I think. And that's actually better. Because what's happening here is a co-creation that is my life. It's not just on me. And as, I, as I'm on the way to get to wherever I'm going, I'm always reminding myself that there, the place I'm going is not the actual goal. What is the actual yeah. goal is feeling alive. So in this moment, in this conversation with you, this is going to be one oh, of the best parts of my day. The journey is the reward. Yeah. Sure. Steve Jobs used to say it a lot. Is the journey is the reward. It was usually before he made his engineers work insane amount of hours, but you know, it's basically like, don't focus on the outcome, but just basically like what you're learning and, and how you're progressing along the way. As you know, the title of this podcast is Untether Your Life. And as I talked about earlier, is breaking free a lot of those templates, whether it's cultural, whether it's work, whether it's health, whatever it is. You've done an amazing job of that, I think, with this book. And you've really broken out of your comfort zone and, and gone in new directions. And I think inspired a lot of people. I think I'm going to look into skydiving. Even. I don't know. <laughs> the jury's still out on that one. But how would you advise the listener uh, to untether their lives uh, based on your experience? I let go of the stigma, let go of the shame, let go of the need to preserve an image of yourself to the world. Because that that act of preservation that you think you're doing is actually limiting you. Um, it's only recently that I've been talking about my dad's cross-dressing. It, it, even hearing it come out of my mouth, there's a thing in my head that's like, right. no, <laughs> yeah. don't talk about that. Because that's what I did I did for a long time. It only is a thing I shouldn't talk about if, if I feel stigma or shame about it. And I don't. I celebrate that he did that. I've met cross-dressers. I've met people who perform in drag. There's a community there. Knowing who my dad was, I believe that he celebrated people when he did it. And he helped people. And he had an outlet to help himself be who he was. Do I wish he could have felt more free with it? Yes, of course I do. Um, I think he probably struggled because of that. I know he struggled because, you know... He made choices that made it so that he spent less time with my brother and me just to protect us. But I would say the more you allow your external circumstances and your past to define who you think you are, 
And the more you feel bad about it, the less you're going to find who you are. But like it just it, it decreases your ability and not and not just identity, right? Like not just who am I? What am I doing with my life? What am I going to be successful with and fulfilled by? But rather, do I feel present in this moment? Mm-hmm. Like we were just saying, am I even enjoying myself? Am I going after things with zest? Like I feel like now we're living in a time where people act like that's bad or right. uncool. And the coolest people are the people who are enthusiastic yeah. about something, you know, like they're fully alive and that's awesome. And they're connecting with people. And and quite honestly, like the more you let yourself be that excited little kid inside of you who was excited about something. Yeah, that sense of wonder you have that you might be not letting yourself have, the more you let that out, the more people are going to enter your life who are the same way. And they're going to mirror it back to you. And it's going to be like a flame that's attracting another flame. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So Laura, this is just such an amazing discussion. Your story is just so inspiring. And it's always what I'm fascinated by with this podcast is how the universe sort of puts people in my path that are on a similar journey, whether it's, you know, the loss of a loved one, journeys with mental health, creative uh, spark. So I, I want to say it, it's been amazing uh, speaking to you. If people are interested in learning more about your book, your journey and connect with you, what is the best way uh, for them to do that? You can go to my website, bylaracarney.com. All the links are on there for ordering the book. I actually, on Instagram and Facebook, I'm my father's list, and I do post updates on there. People have been really interested in the book tour. I feel like they're along for the ride with me, just like with the lit. Well, congratulations on the success of the book. Congratulations on you know everything you're, as you said, co-creating. It's, it's really inspiring, and I uh, really want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you ask amazing oh, questions. My pleasure. It's really an honor thank talking you. to you. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. For more of these types of conversations, please visit us at untetheryourlife.co. You can also find us on Instagram at untetheryourlife, as well as on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms by searching for Untether Your Life. And if you did enjoy this episode, please leave us a review or share it with someone who might also benefit. Thanks, and until the next time we meet, stay untethered.